0: Hello friends, I have to tell you all about C60 Purple Power. Since I started using C60, which may be the most powerful antioxidant known to man, I feel amazing and you should too. I have more energy, I sleep better, and I've lost over 30 pounds. But please go check it out for yourself. It has so many amazing benefits, just click the link in the description or visit c60purplepower.com and use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10 to get 10% off your order plus free shipping.
1: That's C60 Purple Power. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge
0: News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Terry Lovelace. Before I bring him on, I want to tell you about how you can protect yourself from harmful EMF radiation. Did you know that your phone, computer, or tablet you're using right now to watch this video is emitting harmful EMF radiation? It's scientifically proven to interfere with many physiological processes in our body and harm us in many ways, most especially the brain and nervous system. Children's brains absorb more than twice the amount of EMF radiation than us adults, which means it's important to not only protect yourself, but also your children. Check out EMF Harmonize. They offer protection for your phone, computer, or tablet, and your routers. I have one on my computer and my cell phone. I've noticed a difference. I'm not feeling as groggy. I'm sleeping better. I have more energy during the day, even after spending hours in front of my computer or near my phone. The products were created by a mechanical engineer with three decades of experience in EMFs and telecommunication. You can use the link below to check out EMF Harmonize and protect yourself today. Also, subscribe to Forbidden Knowledge News on LBRY.com. It's our official backup channel. We also have a brand new show called Beyond Classified. It's exclusively on Rockfin. Rockfin is an awesome new platform for free-thinking content creators, independent media. You're going to find tons of great... Content creators, there you're going to find all the topics you that are no longer allowed here on YouTube. Uh, it's all on Rockfin. You can click that link in the description to sign up for that. Also, you can get tickets to Forbidden Knowledge NewsCon 2021. It's going to be April 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. They're going to have 12 amazing presenters. Visit ForbiddenKnowledge.news to check out this year's awesome lineup and get your tickets today. And finally, I just want to thank everybody that's made donations. We don't have big corporate sponsors and it's because of you guys that support us that we're able to bring you these amazing guests and continue bringing you this important information every day. If you'd like to make a donation, those links are in the description. Tonight, I want to welcome Terry Lovelace. He is a six-year veteran of the United States Air Force. He completed a bachelor's degree in psychology at Park University in 1979. He later earned a Juris Doctor at Western University of Michigan Law School. He passed the Michigan Bar Examination on his first attempt. His legal career began in private practice, where he handled a variety of civil litigation and criminal defense cases. He entered public service as an assistant attorney general and later as a general counsel for for LBJ Tropical Medical Center in the U.S. territory of American Samoa. Elected by his peers, he served a one-year term as president of the American Samoa Bar Association. He retired in 2012 as an assistant attorney general for the state of Vermont. He is author of Incident at Devil's Den and now Devil's Den, The Reckoning. He continues to write and is a frequent speaker at UFO events. And his story was filmed for Strange Curiosity, a television documentary by Nine Diamond Production Company. Terry, welcome back. How are you doing tonight? I don't think I can hear you there.
1: I'm sorry. I said thanks very much. I appreciate the kind introduction, and it's great to be back.
0: Yes, I was looking forward to this. Um, Last time you were on, we we barely scratched the surface of your experiences. Now's a perfect time to talk again and get a little deeper into your encounters and talk about your new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Uh, Now, I'd like to know, to start off with, did you write the new book because you had new memories or new experiences or just maybe a little bit of both?
1: You know, it's a combination of factors. I I left a lot of um a lot of facts left unanswered, a lot of questions left unanswered when I published the first book, such as, you know, what exactly became of uh, Toby? Um, I left people hanging as far as, uh, when I published Devil's Den on March 10th of 2018, a young man named uh, Rodney Letterman had disappeared, banished from uh, Devil's Den State Park. And on March of 2019, uh, there was kind of a dramatic end to that and I promised readers I'd let them know the outcome of that. So that's, that's kind of an interesting story. It's kind of a cool story. Um, and I also wanted to fill them in on some other odds and ends. There was, uh, there's an entire chapter about uh, early childhood experiences that I'd left out of the first book at the suggestion of my editor because he thought, well, you know, you included enough about your childhood. But um, I think it's worth looking at some information from the entity, Betty, that contacted me. Uh, I also, you know, in the back of Devil's Den, I included an email address and I said, look, I'm not a doctor or a therapist, but if you've had a really interesting or bizarre encounter and you'd like to talk to somebody about it, email me. uh, and I promise I'll return your email. Well, I've got close to 1500 emails to date since 2018. And uh, some people have told me some pretty incredible stories And I boiled out of the 1,500, well, 1,400 at the time, I boiled down about 400 and selected about 50 of what I thought were the very best, very credible, uh, just really cool stories. And I vetted them as well as I could. I spoke with the people and uh, got their permission to publish their stories. And there are 30 short stories published in the back of the book. And I wouldn't mind commenting on, on a story or two or sharing a story or two with you. Uh,
0: Definitely. Yeah, I'd, l- I'd love to get into that. And I want to kind of get into some of the sections of your book, starting with you mentioned childhood experiences that you really didn't mention before. Could you kind of tell us about some of those?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I tell the story about how, uh, the true story about how I, uh, you know, my, my parents wouldn't believe me. They thought overactive imagination. uh you know, they were pretty disturbed because I'd have these screaming nightmares and wake up the whole family. And, uh, I had these, as I reported in devil's dead, I had these four little entities that would come into my room at night, which is interesting because I had four little circus monkeys as, as crazy as that sounds. You know, I had a uh, cousin at the same time, about my same age down in Arkansas, Northern Arkansas, uh, middle of the state, nowhere near devil's den. Um, who was experiencing little clowns in his room. And I guess the circus, the circus theme kind of fit with uh, E.T., you know, for the Lovelace family. But uh, That's interesting. people wrote to me, telling me that when they were kids, between four and six, seven years old, that they would see, I mean, everything. Clowns were the most prevalent, but I heard owls and raccoons and deer and glowing orbs and walking uh, little gray aliens and just all kind of variety of things that that people saw as children and um, either dismissed as a dream or didn't remember until they read my book.
0: Uh, Now from, from your childhood to the time you had your experience in 1977, was there anything kind of between that or was there, you know, nothing really?
1: There were two brief episodes. um, And when I was eight years old, and things were kind of coming to an end with the monkey man abductions and, and that type of thing. In May of 1968, when I was, uh, pardon me, May of 1963, when I was eight years old, I was in my backyard. And uh, I don't think I've told you this story. Um, I, was, uh, shooting a bow, I was shooting a bow and arrow, shooting arrows into a bale of hay. Um, which is kind of a lethal thing to give an eight-year-old, but, you know, it was a different time. And I'm in St. Louis city. I'm in a, we lived in a row house. So we have neighbors on all sides of us. It was a Saturday. It was a beautiful day. And there was like a million people out, you know, cutting grass, hanging up laundry, dogs, cats, kids, cars, all over the place. It's, it's a busy, busy place. And uh, as I'm loading an arrow into the notch of my bow, I'm looking down and I saw this circular shadow move across my feet. And I looked up. And as soon as I looked up, I had this odd effect, this odd auditory change, and all the noises in the neighborhood sounded muted. I mean, it was like I had my hands pressed against my ears or something. Uh, and I looked up and I saw this thing, you know, 50 feet over my head and thought it was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it was, it was cool in a way that, you know, like a new Alfa Ferrero or, you know, like, like, a, like a new sports car is on a showroom floor. It was that kind of... of Uh, Cool. No fear whatsoever. Um, And I watched it for a few moments and it shot off like zero to 500 miles an hour and is gone in a flash. And as soon as it was gone, all the sounds came back. Um, And, you know, no one else in the neighborhood saw a thing, which is kind of crazy. And then, yeah, three years later, when I was 11, I I woke up in the middle of the night to some flashing lights and I saw a typical saucer. Uh, Could have been the same one. I don't know. Right outside my bedroom window, second story bedroom window. So those were the only two uh, events that I had. And from age 11 for the next 11 years, I had no contact, no intervention, no no, uh, problems whatsoever. Uh, But when I was 22 and in the Air Force, that was the event in 1977.
0: Now, for the audience that may not be familiar, which um, I'm sure most of the audience is by now. I was hoping you could give maybe a brief synopsis of your story. Cause I know you told it last time, but it's such an incredible story. I think um, it would help the audience if they heard uh, a synopsis of what happened to you on
1: that evening. Sure. Let me see if I can shorten it up just a bit, uh, but get all the, all the, uh, yeah, all the major details up? there. Yeah. Uh, my friend, uh, Toby, Guy I worked with we were both uh, EMTs, first responders at Whiteman Air Force Base emergency room. And uh, he, we worked a night shift from 11 p.m. till 8 a.m. And he came up to me one night and said, Look, I got an idea. Let's go camping. And uh, I was kind of dismissive of the idea at first, but I had a new camera. I wanted to photograph wildlife. He said he knew a perfect place to go six and a half hours south of where we were stationed. Um, but he said it was worth the drive, and he kind of talked me into it. I'm sure he so said, sure, let's go. So in June, we went, and um, we, we didn't stay in a campground. Uh, we wanted to stay someplace. You know, we, we thought we'd never been camping in our lives, but we wanted to be real outdoorsmen, right? So we, uh, we trespassed into what we thought was a nature preserve, um, but actually it's, it's, it's a set of, of federal land. If you go to Google Earth, you can see it. Uh, the, the place where we stayed is a plateau that's still there and it should be covered with 40 year old mature trees by now, but it's not. And we made our way to the top of this plateau. And I mean, we were very far away. We were, we were in the middle of nowhere, set up camp, did all the fun stuff you do when you're camping. And we're sitting around a campfire that evening. And in a lull in our conversation, I noticed And it sounds cliche, I know, but it's true that the sounds of the forest, the crickets, tree frogs, all the insects that make noise, they all fell silent and it unnerved me. It didn't faze my friend, but it unnerved me. Uh, And uh, a few minutes later, he has his head turned to the left and he's looking at something. And I'm about to ask him, what are you looking at? And he asked me, were those lights there before? And I knew there were no lights anywhere uh, that we could see. So I stood up because I, I couldn't see the lights because his torso was in the way. And on the western horizon, there was this set of three little stars in a, in a tight, in a tight little triangle. And we're looking at them; they're completely out of place, and they rotated, like they were on an axis, and turned about 120 degrees and aligned themselves with the base of the triangle, parallel with the horizon. And then they started to go up. And as soon as they started to go up, I had this. Um, feeling of calm washed over me and that, that all that uh, nervousness that I had, all that anxiety that I felt about the, um, the noises being gone, that was all gone. I felt semi-sedated and uh, we watched this thing climb up to what I call a ceiling where it leveled out and then it did a glide on a plane like with the apex of the triangle pointed directly in our direction. So we knew it was headed toward us. And it came in over the forest at about 5,000 feet. And we saw the shadows because uh, we were on this elevated plateau level with the tops of the trees of the forest. So we saw the shadow move across the forest. Uh, there were lights on the point of each each, tra- each point of the triangle. Obviously, that's where the three lights came from. Those dimmed somewhat as it descended. And it parked 3,000 feet over the meadow. Uh, Unfortunately, fortunately, we had camped off to the side, so this thing wasn't directly over our heads. Um, there were some lights that had shined down. It shined down a, a beam of white light that looked like, a, you know, the same quality of a searchlight cutting through fog. And that landed in our campfire for maybe 60 seconds and then clicked off. And then there was a, uh, like a laser beam-like thing that darted all around the campsite and you know, I I had the thought that this thing is scanning us. It's, it's checking us out. And it struck, the laser thing struck me in the chest a couple of times. I never felt a thing. It hit my body Uh, and all this time we're feeling that sedated feeling. And then when, when the laser thing lasted just maybe a couple minutes and then shortly thereafter, there's no conversation between us. I mean, we're just in a weird place kind of a mix between apathy and mild, not, not apathy, disinterest, uh, but definitely sedation. And then I felt suddenly a shift from that sedation to I was sleepy. I mean, all I wanted to do was get to the tent and go to sleep and made my way to the tent and uh, fell in. And my, my friend went in front of me and we were both, we were out as soon as we hit the inflatable air mattress. We were just gone and you know, Woke up sometime later to uh, flashing lights outside, and uh, you know, the thing had descended to 30 feet over the meadow. And we were scared to death. Saw some little guys walking around in the meadow that we could really only see during flashes of light because of the. Uh, this thing was so close to the ground, there, w- there was no, no ambient starlight to speak of. It was now,
0: what could you make out of the little guys again?
1: About a dozen to 15. Uh, They were paired up in twos and threes, and I first thought they were children. And I asked my friend Toby, I said, man, what are these little kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night? And he said, Terry those ain't no little kids. Look at them again. They're not human beings. And when he said that, I kind of snapped back to reality, and uh, then then the fear set in. And then I was afraid I'd cough or we'd sneeze or do something, draw attention to ourselves. And we didn't know they were long done with us.
0: That's, yeah, that's, that's terrifying. And, you know, you didn't have the remainder of your memories come back till, till later on. Um, But after the incident, uh, Toby didn't do so well and take things
1: well, right? Toby did not do well. Uh, And I have to admit, I had my struggles as well, but nowhere near what what he had. Um, He, um, you know, we were ordered by the Air Force to have no contact with one another which according to Robert Hastings, who wrote the book, UFO and Nukes, about, and has interviewed hundreds of guys from uh, nuclear bases, but where we were at. And uh, he said it's very common when two, two people have the same experience, or three or five, you break them up. You don't allow them to, which makes sense. Two people have, you know, they can each bolster each other's story. It's just a more credible story if you have two people that uh, saw the same thing. So, um, but he fell into... Uh, we we spoke with his ex-wife and who came to visit us when we were in Michigan. And, and um, she told us that he just, he just fell apart, that he wasn't so much a daytime drinker, but he was afraid of the night. He was afraid to sleep and he would just pound vodka before he'd go to bed. Um, And I kind of understand that in a way. I mean, sleep is when, when you've had an experience like this, it changes us. And, and, And I felt vulnerable in my sleep, you know, I mean, that's, um, it was hard for me to sleep too. I still take a couple Benadryl. I still keep with the, you know the light on at night. Um, you know it. It. it uh, I could understand, but I could also see where that would be, uh, you know, really harmful behavior to to fall into that. And uh, he uh, he did not do so well, and he ended up passing away on September fourth, two thousand and seven. Uh, I found that out. After I had been told uh, by someone in law enforcement that he was killed in a crossover car accident um, while in Michigan coming out of Flint. So, yeah, that's was a lot very of interesting to
0: aspect me. to that, that he would lie
1: to you about that. It's very interesting. Uh, and again, I, I apologize to law enforcement because, uh, you know, I worked as a prosecutor. I worked with uh, law enforcement. I respect law enforcement. Uh, but this guy lied to me. And I don't know why he lied to me. And I don't want to tar all of law enforcement with the same brush here, but uh, I think that somewhere there's a file that has my name on it and Toby's name on it, and it says these guys shouldn't get together. I mean, I mean that's the only conclusion I can come to.
0: Yeah, I mean that I wouldn't doubt that for a second. Um, now it wasn't until much later that you actually remembered. Being on the ship and some of the events that occurred. Um, could you talk about some of the things that you remembered, some of your most profound memories from
1: being on the ship? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, it, it's when Toby made that statement to me in the tent. Uh, Don't you remember, Terry? They took us and they heard us whenever he was talking about those aren't human beings. As soon as he said those words, I had mental flashes of being inside that thing, but just only the briefest. Uh, and, and I'll be clear, I've never had a clear linear memory of everything that happened to us because uh, we were in there probably five hours. But I do have some recollection. Now, the OSI did interrogate me under the uh, influence of hypnotism and sodium amytal. I tried to resist the hypnosis, but I couldn't really resist the sodium amytal. And that actually was very helpful in that that brought back a drug is classified as a hypnotic for a reason. I mean, it it's a short-acting hypnotic, but I mean, it was like bam, and it it put me in a different place. I could uh, I could relive in my mind's eye these events as they happen, and I think without without that, I wouldn't remember half of what I remember. Uh, and I think that memory uh, remembering is very important because I think if you come out of this with no memory that uh, and it's stuffed down into your subconscious that. Maybe like Toby, a lot of it will filter up in unhealthy ways and manifest as alcoholism or drug abuse or self-destructive behavior. So I'm glad that I have what I have. It gives me enough to kind of process what happened. Although, you know, also 30 years of nightmares, 40 years of nightmares. But what I saw on the ship was this. I recall being inside the ship and I don't know if we were actually inside the ship that we were seeing or if they took us someplace else. Um, there's a drawing of the ship on my website, uh, terrylovelace.com, if anyone wants to see it, a drawing that I made contemporaneous with the event. And I was aware that we were inside of some place, but the inside looked much bigger than the outside of this thing looked like it. And we were in a large open atrium and I couldn't move. I was like, like Calvin Parker described, I, I, I couldn't move anything except my eyes. And I was aware that they had had stripped us both and we were holding our boots and our clothing and our arms like this. And again, all I can move is my eyes. So I can see the far side of this thing. And uh, I mean, from the outside, it looked like the size of a Walmart. From the inside, it looked like an NFL stadium. And again, I don't know if I was actually inside of that craft with some kind of different kind of physics or maybe they took us someplace, I don't know. And I was aware that Toby was next to me. And I I saw a lot of activity. I saw like the little gray guys running all over the place. I saw what looked like a golf cart with no wheels on it moving. I saw three saucers, three silver saucers lined up. I mean, like planes under a carrier deck parked uh, with like, look like large garage doors. Um, And I also noticed, um, and of of the little vignettes that I have, of being inside that thing, this is the most frightening uh, to me. And it's been the focus of nightmares for me for a long time. And I noticed that there was this being about six foot tall that was not gray. He was chalkish pink in color, um, but he was humanoid. He had no ears to speak of and no cartilage for a nose, just two nostrils, a slit for a mouth. And he had the large eyes, but they weren't exaggerated like, some of the motion pictures, these were more like a pair of wraparound ray bands. And I'm straining my eyes to the left as far as I can go to see him uh, because as he walked across my field of view, I could tell he was somebody, I mean, he walked with an air of authority. You know, he was, well, he was twice as tall as everybody, but and um, he was obviously a different species of thing. Um, while I'm straining my eyes, just by happenstance, he turns his head and we locked eyes. And this this is hard to explain, but this guy was in my head, and I knew he was in my head. And in an instant, he knew me. He knew my wife. He knew my secrets. He knew my dreams, my hopes, everything. My he knew my He knew everything about me. And he downloaded it from me. And um, that's a very very ugly feeling. Uh, Talk about it's just a huge invasion of your of your privacy and uh, talk about feeling of vulnerability, it was just horrendous. And, you know, what I could see back from those eyes was just raw intellect. You know, the way I like to analogize this is I have, I have a, we have a dog, we have an English setter, and he'll come over and put his head in my lap and look at me with those big brown eyes, you know, and I pat him on the head and say, good boy. And, you know, I have, but we understand our respective roles. He knows I'm the alpha. You know, I'm the one that gives him food and he's the one that gives me unconditional love and trust. And, but he knows who I am. We each know our respective roles. When I had this exchange with this entity, I felt like the dog, it was humbling. I felt like this thing, whatever I was looking at was like 500 rungs up the evolutionary ladder from me. Um, and that that's frightening. And, I think that's a big revelation. That's a big epiphany to come to that we're not top dog, that we're not top species, that there are others out there that um, are superior to us. And this thing thing's absolutely superior to me.
0: Check out our friends at Linquistity Gifts. Linquistity Gifts is a metaphysical store offering natural gemstone bead bracelets, signature and Zodiac designed and made in the United States as well as raw and polished stones, crystal balls, pendulums, tarot cards, natural crystal points, wands, and so much more. Their beautiful signature design bracelets can aid with creativity, balance, focus, and well-being. They can even customize the bracelets for you. Just send them an email to find out pricing and availability. Visit their website using the link in the description or visit linguistitygifts.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your first order over $20. And right now they are offering $5 off the purchase of two or more bracelets. linguistitygifts.com Yeah, that's, that's one of the parts of your story that really sticks with me and it's the most really profound is, you know, that this being could just pick you apart like that, and know everything about you, and be such a higher intellect and such a, a more um, you know advanced species than us—that's a uh, you know it couldn't be terrifying thought. Just like you said. Um, now after the, I guess after they returned you, um, you had s- some kind of like um, burns on your skin, right?
1: We did. Um, we, I had the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life. I mean, I, I, was, it was just, and you know, it was under my arms. My, it was on my scalp. It was on the soles on my feet. I mean, I was burned everywhere and I, I, that didn't make any sense. I mean, I, uh, I never took my shirt off. Certainly never took my pants or my boots off that I knew of. Um, so we weren't out in the sun. We didn't, you know, we didn't bake in the sun, uh, but uh, the most annoying thing was I had what was called a flash burn to my eyes. It's basically a sunburn to the cornea of your eye. It's what an arc welder would get if they didn't use that, that hood to um, to shield their vision. Uh, and that's very painful. It feels like you have sand in your eyes. You're very photophobic. You want to be in a dark place.
0: Now, do you remember anything that happened on the ship that could correlate to those burns or, or any anything else that may have happened, any experiments, something like that?
1: Yeah, there, there, well, there are two that, that, that come to mind immediately. And that is that um, this place was incredibly lit up. I mean, it was, and I couldn't find, there, there were no light fixtures to speak of. It was like the light just radiated out of every place. And everything was either stainless steel or like a white or a white porcelain, white gloss. Um, the floor I believe was gray. Um, it may have been textured somehow. Again, without being able to move my head down or up, it was very difficult, except the, you know, what I could see in the distance. Um, and it was, um, yeah, I would just, that's the best description of it I can give. Um, the, 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 the second part, um, there was a second incident that I should describe for you briefly were they they took me they, well first they took well first I heard a woman screaming and then I heard I noticed that I could perceive that my friend Toby was gone he wasn't there and then I heard him because I recognized his voice and he screamed, "Oh my God, oh my God, no and screamed so I knew that they were going to come for me and I'm terrified and I can do nothing and they came and I had you know a gray on either side of me and They moved me along uh, and I glided on the floor. I never moved my, my feet. I didn't feel my feet gliding on the surface, but somehow I glided along and they took me down a corridor. When I went down this corridor, I was aware that to my right, I could see what looked like fish tanks. To the left was just a white wall, but to my right there were this group of fish tanks that started off small and then it got progressively larger the further down the hallway that we went. Uh, and one of these, um, like large aquariums, like you'd see in a, in a doctor's office or something, uh, bigger than a, a household aquarium, um, there was pink water and what looked to be like a puppy. You know, puppies have those folds of skin. Right. That's what this, this looked like. And um, I was straining my eyes to the right, and it opened its eyes, and that scared me to death. That's, that scared me. Um, and that's a subject of nightmares.
0: Yeah, that is. Wow. So, I mean, do you think that they were doing some type of um, hybrid or DNA experiments, possibly?
1: You know, you got to be breeding something. I mean, you know, it's obviously something in vitro. It's something outside of a body. Whatever that thing came from, I don't know what it was. I'm sure it wasn't a puppy. Um, But what type of being it was, I, I don't know.
0: Right. Now, I'm going to pull up a picture um, that you have here of, let's see. It's Devil's Den. It is the uh, area around Devil's Den, the plateau, uh, that there's still no trees there. Um, could you talk a little bit about what what is going on there today?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting story. I... Uh... I never thought to look for this place on Google Earth, uh, but from my description of where it was and how we got to it and the physical description of it with the water at the end and and the like and the going up the plateau, the guys from Astonishing Legends actually found these images and sent them to me. And I'm just blown away because this place should be covered with 40-year-old mature trees by now, and it's not. Um, And I got a close-up. Uh, you know, you can zoom in to the top of that plateau. And if you do that, uh, well, I had posted it to my uh, Facebook page. And uh, I got a a, a message from a guy, uh, a friend who's a landscaper in Alabama. And he said, if you look close, you can see that the grass is cut into like six or eight inch lengths. And he said that he could see tractor marks were like a farm tractor had probably pulled what he called a brush hog. I don't know. I don't see a lot there other than, than what looks like cut straw to me. But um, what, what I don't get is why that, that land is owned by the Bureau of Land Management, which is the United States government. And why would the United States government spin gas for 50 years to cut the top of a plateau in the middle of nowhere just to keep it deforested? That makes no sense to me.
0: Yeah, that is, that is very strange. Um, now, do you have any thoughts as to, you know, other than why they may have done that?
1: You know, I mean, it's kind of the, the obvious. I, I, I don't know the truth, but I mean, I can, I can make an assumption, and that is that uh, what we saw comes and goes there. And I, I really believe that.
0: Yeah, that, would be, um, that wouldn't be that far out of a thought you know, to think that they've come back, uh, you know, especially with the, the trees not being there and everything it's very interesting. Well, now, it fits um, fit
1: perfectly over that triangle too.
0: What's that?
1: It fits perfectly over that area that, that's semi-triangle.
0: Yes, yeah, that is super interesting. Um, now, also in your new book, you talk about some newer experiences that you've had, um, well, the first one's not that new, but in 1987, you had some missing time during a motorcycle ride, right?
1: I did, I did, and I I explained that in uh, my first book. It's called "The Last Motorcycle Ride." But there there are some some details that I that I should add, and that is that uh, I was on my bike uh, doing a solo ride early on a Sunday morning uh, on a route that I was very familiar with. That was uh, a rural area. There's, you know, it was farmland mostly. And uh, I, uh, I was coming up to a turn, and I was throttling back from about 80 down to about 60 as I'm approaching this turn. And all of a sudden, I mean, like this, I'm on my bike and I'm doing 30 on a gravel road. And that really, that really confused me because I would never take my motorcycle on a gravel road. I mean, bad for the paint job, bad for the bike. It's a little bit dangerous. You know, I don't wanna want to get my bike dusty. You know, I just would not do that. But I, I blamed it on being um, absent-minded or being absorbed in thought. Um, later, I found out that I was missing two hours when I got home and my wife was frantic, uh, thinking I was, you know, lying on the road somewhere dead in a ditch. Um, what happened was, when, when I was there and I explained this, uh, I got off of the bike and I held the handle helmet in my left hand and there was a saucer about 50 feet in diameter, 50 feet or so down the road, uh, above the roadway, about three or four feet above the roadway. Um, and I recall being in that, that zoned out place where I wasn't afraid or wasn't, I wasn't much of anything and uh, a ramp descended and I walked up the ramp, um, uh, helmet in my hand, and I met Betty, the entity that I saw in 2017, that I remembered as Sue from when I was four, five, and six years old. Same entity intervening throughout my entire life.
0: This was your first
1: encounter with Betty? This was my first adult encounter with Betty. Your
0: first adult encounter. What Did did she tell you anything um, important this time? In
1: 1987 we greeted each other like old friends. Um, And um, I remembered her from my childhood back then. And that's when we went, we were shuttled from the saucer into some other craft. And that's when I was walking with Betty and, and I explained down a corridor of what I thought was some kind of huge warehouse. And we were looking at these giant windows at the stars, and there were just a trillion stars. These windows were like, you know, 20 by 60 feet. I mean, they were just enormous. And uh, I had no idea where we were at. And from, I felt no sense of motion whatsoever. Um, And from my right there rolled this giant white object, which was the moon. And I thought, it scared me to death. I thought it's going to hit us. And Betty told me telepathically, as that's how she communicates, that no, that's the moon. It's in motion. We, you know, it's not in motion. We're in motion. You're aboard a ship, and we're we're traveling. And um,
0: now, was Betty um, completely
1: humanoid-looking? She looks very human, except that well, she's very petite. Uh, And her eyes are all black without any sclera or irises. Um, She has no cartilage or uh, ears or a nose. Uh, And she has sparse hair on top of her head. Uh, But the most unusual feature, two most unusual features, uh, are that she has long arms and very long fingers. Uh, I could see four long fingers. I don't know if if there was a thumb tucked in back of those fingers or not. But that's what I saw. And the back of her head, uh, was bulbous. It was, it was big. It was bigger than a human head. When you saw her from behind, if she wasn't wearing a wig or something, you could see that, uh, it wasn't a human head. Uh,
0: now, how did this experience end the one in 1987?
1: It ended with me being set back down by the motorcycle and them taking away and them taking off. And, uh, I had no memory of this um until she visited me in in, in uh October 2017. Um,
0: and then now that we're talking about it, we might as well um tell us about what happened that time in 2017.
1: Sure. This was amazing. Um and this is in the last chapter of Incident at Devil's Den, and I also review it in the new book. Um what happened was I, I woke up in my living room uh, sometime in the early morning, 2.30ish or so. Uh, I opened my eyes and I'm sitting bolt upright in my chair in the living room where I normally sit. And I am sedated. I have that, that sedated feeling again that you get whenever you're under their influence. And I glanced at the alarm system to my left and it was set and seated directly across from me is what I first took to be a petite Asian woman, um, with black hair, big black sunglasses. She wore a cotton black outfit, uh, a blouse with extra long sleeves and the four long fingers sticking out, uh, black slacks and black nursing shoes with high heat with you know kind of a higher sturdy heel uh, to kind of compensate for her short stature. Uh, She also had like a red scarf tied around her neck because her neck is pencil thin. Um, So I think that the way that she was dressed, she could probably walk down the street of, you know, Denver and maybe not draw so much as a second notice. But um, the more I looked at her, well, you know, it it was, it was crazy because it was a telepathic communication. My, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, freaked out. I wasn't uh, scared. She's seated in a non-threatening posture with her legs crossed and uh, I didn't feel threatened by her at all. Um, And my first thought was, I wish she'd take off those sunglasses. And she did like on cue. And I heard her voice in my head with crystal clarity, like any, like any spoken word. And she said, it's nice to see you again. And um, I, I commented that uh, mentally, I commented that the wig looked ridiculous because I know that sounds crazy, but that was my first, that was my <laughs> second observation was because her head is so large. The wig she wore was for a human head and it sat all askew on top of her head. <laughs> and I called her Betty because she looked like Betty Rubble from the Flintstones. Um, but I, I immediately recognized her as being the entity that I knew as Sue, from when I was ages four through eight. Same same woman, same being, had not aged a day. And she acknowledged that and said as much. And uh, you know what? What I, I remember thinking that, um, my God, what if I think something? You know, what if I think about her being an intruder? What if I think the wrong thing? Or what if I think of something inappropriate? Well, then, of course, you know, if, if you think that, I mean, it's like telling a group of fourth graders, don't think of elephants. What are they going to do? They're going to think of elephants. Well, I thought of everything inappropriate flashed across my mind. I guess I'm human. I could, you know, right. and uh, I swear she was embarrassed. And, and I, she said to me telepathically, Terry, you can control your thoughts if you just try. No, I'll never know <laughs> if that was just said for my benefit or not. Um, but it but it helped me to kind of feel grounded and um, kind of stay on on point.
0: Wow. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. Um, I've had my own experience with speaking telepathically with an entity. This was through meditation, much different, though. But uh, I know how it feels to be able to have this instant kind of communication. It's 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 kind of great. To, to be able to communicate that way. I've never been able to experience that before. Um,
1: it is great. I- although, although I will say there, there, there's yeah. a reason why uh, mankind in general doesn't communicate telepathically, and I don't think we're disciplined enough. I mean, in a meditative state, it would be a different thing, but um, it would be a disaster if we all had telepathic communication because you know, we could control our speech, but we can't control our thoughts. And right. if our thoughts are an open book, I think that would be a, a terrible thing. We're it could ready. be.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't know if everybody's ready for that one yet. Um, but another part of this whole phenomenon is I have some pictures that I'm going to pull up as you talk about it. Um, you've had some implants and you have the actual x-rays and, and evidence to show that there are foreign objects there, right?
1: I do. As a matter of fact, I should mention that was the entire catalyst for me to come forth and write this book and speak publicly. Yeah, it was in uh, 2012. I went, I uh, had some knee pain that was completely unrelated to the implants, by the way. My knee pain was just from a, uh, a thing called a Baker cyst, which is benign cyst that you get. It um, you catch it like you catch a cold. It causes knee pain for a couple of weeks. Then it goes away. They're always benign. Um, but in, in looking for the source of my knee pain, they discovered these things. And uh, when they did, you know, the uh, radiology tech was like, have you had a shrapnel wound? You have been in an accident or something that could account for this metal in your leg? And I'm like, no, uh, nothing I know. I've never had any injury to that leg other than a skin knee as a kid. And she said, well, you've got some foreign bodies in your leg. I'm, I've asked the radiologist to come down, and uh, the radiologist came down and was obviously annoyed at being called down. Uh, but when he walked over and looked at my X-rays, he was uh, interested. And above my knee, is there, there was a square uh, object about the size of your fingernail with two wires attached that went up, that ran up my leg. Um, I don't know how far they ran up because it went off the, uh, off the uh, film. And then uh, below my leg, uh, well, I asked him to see. He said, you have some odd structures in your leg. And I said, well, can I see them? They're my x-rays. And, you know, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a radiologist but I'd like to, I'd like to see my x-rays. Uh, and he was like, sure, so he popped it up in the box, and as soon as I saw that thing above my knee that has that square shape to it, that's obviously some kind of manufactured structure, it's not a naturally occurring uh, artifact, as soon as I saw that, that was validation that these things did put their hands on me, and uh, I had never thought about writing a book or speaking about this um, in any way, shape, or form until I saw that x-ray, and then I just could not reconcile that. I could not live with that without, I felt that I was just, I was compelled to tell the story and, you know, accept the repercussions. Uh, My friends in the legal community didn't accept it so well But uh, you know what? I, I, there is a real UFO culture in this country with a lot of good people and, uh, since I've written this book and come public, I think I've made many more friends than I've lost uh, in the process.
0: So, Yeah, there there is, um, once you get to know people in the community, uh, like if you go to conferences, there's just kind of sense of, you know, belonging and um, camaraderie a, amongst this community that you you don't get uh, many many other places. I know whenever go, I've gone to conferences, it's uh, it's a great feeling to be around so many like minded people and understanding. And you know, they're they're not going to look at you like you're crazy whenever you're telling your story. You know.
1: Yes, it's a safe and non judgmental place. And you know, when I run into somebody like Travis or, or Calvin Parker or you know, any number of people, it's like immediately we're, you know, like we've known each other, you know, I mean, we're just on the same wavelength and that's, that's reaffirming. It's validation to meet these people and know that you're not alone. You're not unique. I'm not unique.
0: Yeah. It, it I definitely I've experienced the same thing. Um, now did you, uh, you know, for these implants, um, did they give you any problems? Did they cause any pain or anything like that?
1: No. You know, the unique thing was the one above my knee, uh, I had been a runner for 40 years. And I noticed that during my run, every time I would hit the two-mile mark in my run, I started running in 1980. About, uh, I'd read the book by Jim Fix, um, who wrote the book all about running, but kind of turned running into a craze. You know, if you think about it, prior to about – the late 70s, you never saw anybody out running unless they were on an athletic field or maybe, you know, cross country kids in high school or college running across. But you people didn't run generally for exercise. Uh, it just wasn't wasn't a thing until then. So I started running and I noticed that every time I'd hit the two mile mark in my run, uh the spot above my knee and lateral would go completely numb. And I could take a pin and and trace it. It was it was it was numb and kind of itchy, kind of the same sensation you get from a shot of Novocaine in your mouth. Uh, and I could trace the outline of it with a pen, it was perfectly circular. And that numbness would fade in about 30 minutes. And I asked my doctor about it in 1982. I said, you know, this, this is kind of a weird thing, Doc, I get this spot on my leg that goes numb whenever I hit the two mile mark in my run. Um, and she says, you know, what? It's probably a quote, histemic reaction. She says, you know, people get them some, sometimes. It's, if it doesn't affect your run, I wouldn't worry about it. So I never did. But when I saw that X-ray immediately, it registered with me that that spot that would go numb on my leg, lay right over the top of this structure that looks like an electrical device of some kind. Now, and then, go ahead. I was just to say the structures below my knee, uh, he found equally fascinating. Uh, he said, well, he said, yeah, first, didn't you he said, have
0: something in your calf as well?
1: Yes, that's what I'm getting to. Yep, they're, they're there too. There's the transistor-like thing above my leg and then below my knee. Um, he said, well, you have some bones in your knee. And I said, well, isn't that right? and I'm, I'm supposed to have, right? And he says, no, no, no. And he, he showed me in the calf muscle of my leg, you can see clearly there's like a florette pattern of uh, white bone tissue with a little dot in the middle even, um, and I said, well, you know, and he showed it to me, and I'm like, what are those? And he says, well, he says, from, from x-ray film, he says, I can tell you that these are the density of human bone. But he said, I've never in my life seen human bone sprout in the middle of a muscle tissue, far less, I've never seen it arrange itself in a symmetrical pattern like this. So I have no idea what this is. And his diagnosis was rule out baker cyst abnormal knee, was my, was my radiologist report so and those objects are still there the ones below my knee are still there
0: now I also have a picture of something on your upper thigh that looks like a bruise a triangular bruise I'm going to pull that up here talk about that one
1: I will that happened I I explained that this uh, entity Betty I had an encounter with her in my living room in third week in October 2017 when I was writing this book and she warned me because i was planning i was having trouble getting these things taken out because i needed a cardiac clearance letter because i have heart disease i've had two prior heart attacks and the cardiologist every cardiologist i went to and i went to five i went to three in the va system and two that on my own dime that i paid for the cardiologist explained to me that it's a risk versus benefit analysis that the standard of care in this country is no matter how bad you want it out if it's benign um you know, it's not worth the risk of infection and the risk of anesthesia to have them taken out. The risk is greater than the benefit. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but these are foreign objects. I don't want them out of my body. And she says, hey, you know, I got 500,000 other vets out there that have, uh, you know, metal in their body that they picked up in Iraq or Vietnam or wherever. And they want it out yesterday, too. But the standard of care is let it lay. If it's, not, if it's not causing you a problem, it's a bigger risk to remove it than it is to let it lay. So I had made arrangements with a Mexican surgeon in Tijuana to take them out for me. And we were, we were going to finalize that agreement in um, December of 2017. Betty told me that if you continue with your plans to have the thing above your knee removed, that her, she called them hosts, what we refer to as their aliens. She said that they would remove the objects from your leg. I woke up on November 17th of 2017, about three weeks after Betty's visit, and I had these wounds on top of both of my legs. Uh, the bruising didn't come out for about 36 hours, but I had these puncture wounds at the top of my leg. Now don't ask me why the wounds were at the top of my leg when the object was down by my knee. I don't know, my wife made the observation, you don't know how far up those wires went or what their purpose may have been. Um, so I needed an x-ray. So I went out and I found a chiropractor that day and, um, uh, uh, I needed to see him. I had photographs, uh, of my x-rays showing the implants. And, um, uh, I wanted to see if they would really come and taken, taken out the uh, transistor like thing. And, uh, uh, I waited to see the, uh, chiropractor and, uh, he calls me back. He's very busy. He calls me back and says, where do you hurt? How can I help you? And I said, well, you know, uh, I, I heard here. And he looked at the, the puncture wounds and he was kind of intrigued and said, how did you get those? And I said, well, doctor, I'm going to be per- perfectly honest with you. Um, I think that in 1977, I was abducted by aliens and uh, I had an implant put in my leg and I think they came and took it out last night. And he says, okay, then I don't think we can help you today. And, uh, but you know what? I knew, I knew the chiropractors look at 100 X-rays a hundred so he's got me by the elbow, right, and he's leading me to the front door. And I pulled, I held up both of those sheets of paper. And fortunately, he looked at them long enough to, to get his attention. And he said, "Come with me." And we went back. And we went in his office, and he was busy. I mean, people were knocking at the door, his phone's ringing. He sits down and he puts the two pieces of paper in front of me, and he says, "Give me the capsule version of this. How did you get these things in your body?" And I, and I. Gave him a three-minute story and how I think I got them there. Uh, I don't know for sure, but that's how I believe they got there. And he said, "Dig this. He said, well, I'll I'll write an order for your x-ray. He says, I don't have x-ray machinery in the office. He says, we use a freestanding clinic about a mile down the street. He says, I'll write you uh, an order for an x-ray of your knee, uh, and I'll pay for it. And he said, bring it back, and I'll read it for you. And he says, in exchange, I asked that you not use my name or the name of my clinic in your book. And I said, that's a deal. And I respected that agreement. And uh, I had the x-rays in my desk. And uh, sure enough, it shows the object above my knee was gone. However, um, I I saw that it was gone. I held them up to the light in the car to the window and could see they were gone uh, or it was gone. And I dropped the x-rays off at his office and he called me that night after dinner and said, well, did you see your x-rays? I said, yeah. And I said, it's kind of bittersweet. I mean, it's kind of evidence gone. Uh, but at least I had before and after films to show that it was there. Now it's not there. And he says, yeah, but didn't you see they left you something? And I said, no, I didn't see that. And uh, he told me where to look. I had to go pick up the x-rays to see it. But uh, and there's a picture of it in my book and it's not real clear. It just looks like a white streak. But if you look at the x-ray film, there are two tiny wires, about a centimeter long. Uh, one is bent at the, at the very tip. Um, and these are right in the middle of my leg, right next to my, my femur. They're much deeper in my leg. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, because I, I think he's either an experiencer or, you know, he's seen this on x-rays before because he was just too familiar with the process. And I said, Doc, if these things are so much more advanced than we are, how could they be so inept as to leave two stupid wires in my leg? And he says, You don't get it. They don't do anything by accident. He says, uh, What they may have done is just give you an upgrade to a 2017 model of the 1977 model. They removed. And I thought, Right, maybe that cool. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and they're still there.
0: <clears throat> That's absolutely amazing. Now, you also had one more experience in 2019, April 16th. Um, uh, go ahead and tell us about that one, because that one's interesting, too. I have some pictures to kind of correlate it as well.
1: I, I will. I will. Since uh, Sony Walkman days, I sleep with uh, well, I sleep with the light on, the windows, I mean, you know, PTSD. Uh, and I, sleep with headfo- well, I slept with headphones on. Uh, I'm a Sony Walkman, and then now I graduated up. Now I have a shielded iPhone um in a special case i wear a t-shirt to bed every night and this is how i sleep i sleep with it in my pocket with earbuds on and i listen to meditative apps and that drowns out the the noises of the house and i and i can sleep and um otherwise i'll hear a noise and get freaked out and have to get up and investigate so um i've been doing this for years that's the way i sleep and i uh I woke up at 5.55 a.m. on April 16th, 2019. I was sweating profusely and I was out of breath like I'd run hundred yards. And my earbuds are on my chest. Um, but I'm not worried about that because I'm sitting up and I think I'm having a, uh, another heart attack or something. I didn't have any chest pain though, but I'm short of breath. So my wife called an ambulance and um, I was taken to Methodist Hospital. I have those bills I could show too. Um, uh, taken a Methodist hospital, and I mean, I've had enough heart trouble that I know the, uh, the drill. It's a chest x-ray, cardiac enzymes, and an EKG. And by the time I got to the hospital, my vital signs had, had fallen back down to normal. So they kept me for observation for about six hours, and then cut me loose, told me to see my follow-up with my VA cardiologist. So my wife and I go home, had dinner, and it's my routine after dinner to go for about a mile walk. Um, so I grabbed my iPhone cause I use my iPhone health app to measure my walk every night. So I clicked on my iPhone health app and I saw that I climbed six flights of stairs at 5 23 AM. Now at 5 23 AM, I was sound asleep next to my wife. I didn't get up. I didn't wake up until 5 55 AM. And there's a single bar showing that I climbed six flights of stairs, which is 10 feet per flight of stairs, which is equivalent to 60 feet. Uh, I took the app to, uh, well, first to T-Mobile, and they didn't have a clue. Then I took it to Apple. And Apple kept the phone for four hours and did a diagnostic. And I came back and I talked to a, a lady who was a uh, technician and, a, and actually she had a degree in electrical engineering. And she told me that, at five, between 523 and 524 AM, my phone, her words, was 60 feet above your home. And uh, she said, you know, normally, because I know if I, you know, if I'm in a parking garage and I have to walk up five flights of stairs, because, you know, there's an XY axis there, you know, where the Y axis, the vertical axis indicates height in 10 foot increments the x-axis on the bottom runs from left to right and indicates passage of time well I can't fl- I can't climb six flights of stairs in less than a minute it's going to take me a while so I'll typically on this on, a, on the health app I'll get a stair step type readout showing as I reach the first flight and then the second flight and that's measured I didn't know this I thought it was a GPS measurement but it's not it's measured by barometric pressure changing barometric pressure which kind of blew me away. But yeah. That's, wow. That's how it's so yeah. I have no, no memory of what happened that night, um, but it did bug me a lot. And uh, in December, I went and saw a friend of mine uh, who is a board certified psychiatrist uh, with a practice here in Dallas. And I told him I wanted to do a hypnotic regression. Could he do that? He said, sure. He says he does it routinely in his practice. And we've been friends for years, and um, so I went to his office, and this was in December of uh, of uh, 2019, of uh, no, of 2020. Pardon me. Yeah, of 2020, um, because I wasn't sure, you know, I wanted to do this, um, but he did it, and uh, you know, he's also an MD. As a psychiatrist, he's a, he's an MD first, and. Uh, was aware of my heart condition. So he had me hooked up to a, uh, a blood pressure cuff and he monitored my blood pressure. And I think because we're so familiar, I had kind of trouble getting under and into a uh, hypnotic state. But I finally got there and um, he asked me to go through what happened. And I told him that uh, I could recall my physical body going up through the roof, through the ceiling, through a dark space, which I assume is the attic and popping out through the top. I know this sounds crazy. Uh, And it was just dawn, it was just breaking day and it was a beautiful morning. Lots of stars out and directly over my head, maybe 50 feet up is this giant saucer. And the bottom of it opened up like the iris of a camera lens. Uh, And it was just black underneath and I screamed And he took my blood pressure and uh, my blood pressure was high. And he said, we're going to, we're going to stop here. And we're going to, we're going to reconvene in a couple of weeks and uh, we'll get some more into it. Um, And uh, we've not been able to do that. Um, He's 70 years old. He works a full, still sees a full patient load, but he's 70 years old and he's afraid of COVID. So, um, and we, we weren't able to do it by zoom. He wasn't able to get me under in a zoom uh, setting. He said, you need, we need to be, you know, one-on-one. So uh, someday soon it'll be safe to get back together and we can pick it up where it left off. Cause I'd like to know the rest of what happened to me that night.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely love to hear that as well. Now to close out tonight, when I look at experiences like yours, many other abductees, contactees that I've had on, um, experiences uh, that basically all kind of correlate. And when you look at the bigger picture, to me, it looks like, seems like we're some sort of experiment for these advanced beings. Um, Like our whole existence could possibly be um, some sort of either experiment or project for these advanced beings. I don't know. What, What do you think about that? Do you think that's possible?
1: I think that's probable. I I, I do. I mean, I think they study us like we'd study mold spores in a Petri dish, you know? I, uh, and and I don't think that this is limited to one one species. I mean, I think we're being visited by multiple species. It's just like my analogy with the dog. Um, You know, they're just, they're just smarter than we are.
0: Yeah, and if uh, it's like the same thing we do with, you know insects or animals we're going to you know study them and experiment on them and see what we can learn about them so it's it's all fascinating stuff now since um that last incident in 2019 you haven't had anything else happen to you
1: no i think nothing significant uh,
0: but that's probably I mean, okay with you huh <laughs>
1: that's that's just fine with me actually yeah, yeah
0: yeah well Terry, thank you so much for coming on again. Uh, For anyone that wants to get your new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, uh, what's the best way they can do so? Amazon?
1: It's on Amazon, yes. It's currently ranked number three. It was number one in new releases, I'm happy to say. So um, I also included, uh, like I say, 30 30, uh, stories from other people in the back of the book that are interesting. So you might you might find something that really resonates with you if you've had an experience. So,
0: Awesome. Uh, Sounds thank good. Thank you for the
1: opportunity to come back. It's, it's good to be here.
0: Yes. Uh, I'd love to have you back on again. There's so much we could talk about. Um, and especially if you get that uh, other regression done, we got to hear about that too. So Terry, thank you so much for coming on and until next time, everyone else have an excellent evening.